how does wisdom accumulate? How do we go from our first retreat or our first hearing of the Dharma to actually being no realizing that you've got some sort of uh, understanding? How do you know that you've made progress? My friend Mary Neal, who I have pictures of all around where I sit here, we were good friends for 50 years and she died last year. She was a Dominican nun uh, from when she was 17 years old and graduated high school and entered the convent until she died. She was a member of the Dominican Sisters of San Rafael. And we were very close friends for 50 or almost 60 years, maybe. Uh, uh, Mary was nearly 90 when she died. And we used to talk about, uh, uh, we used to talk about the fact that uh, we had different paths because here I was studying and practicing mindfulness. And uh, here she was being a Dominican nun, but there's not a cloistered order, actually. She was a professor at USF, but having that, you know, assigned periods of prayer and going to morning prayer and going to mass every day. And she had practices and I had practices. And we talked about the fact that we uh, got on so well and we understood each other on a, some very deep level. She said, it's because we both have a practice that we're dedicated to. And uh, that uh, she said, I'm not interested in what the name of somebody's practice is. But the question I, she said, I want to ask people is what do you do? What's your spiritual practice? She would say, my practice is uh, Catholicism and, and as a monastic. And, um, and then you say, how do you do it? Well, as Catholicism, well, first of all, you take monastic vows, but also you uh, practice prayer, you practice study, you do things that and that deepen your commitment to that it's a path to something. And so the question is, what what do you do? How do you do it? And what do you expect is going to be the result? And well, the three things that we decided you could ask anybody if their path was um, if their path is Tai Chi or if their path is cooking meals at uh, the Salvation Army or that's my path. If you identify it as your path to wisdom, your commitment. She said we should ask a fourth question. Uh, we used to laugh at that all the time. She, I, she'd say we have to ask a fourth path question. The fourth question is, is it working? And I said, no, no, I, I wouldn't ask that. That is a, that's a, um, that's a provocative question because what if the question, the answer is no, you know, and how would you know and why are you still doing it? So it's a really, it's not a nice question to ask. I never asked anybody. But the thing is, if somebody would have asked me in the beginning, why are you doing this? Why are you going on retreats? Why are you following these particular teachers? I wouldn't have known. It just felt good to me. And I would have said and have said many times, I, I, I am an accidental Buddhist. I came by. I went on retreats. I really liked what they were saying. I liked the quietness. Uh, it made a lot of sense to me what they said. Later on, I could look back and say, you know, they seemed to me, my teachers, although they were much younger than I am, uh, that they seemed to have a certain amount of equanimity and wisdom that I didn't have. And I assumed they got that from this is the lifestyle that they had had. Now I have, I have much more clarity 
about what it is that I am hoping that my spiritual practice does for me, continues to do for me. And uh, uh, and uh, I imagine, and by the definition, it will last the whole rest of my life. People often ask, what's your practice? I am trying to create, uh, and I say this without any, but I mean, I'm happy about it, but I hope I'm not proud. Uh, anyway, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to habituate my mind to kindness. I, if I, I'd be a little bit, maybe, I don't know, show off if I said I want to have a mind like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But I really do want to have a mind like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And I think it's possible from really learning and practicing and developing wisdom. It's not learning what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught, did teach that peace is possible and that you can cultivate a heart of kindness. But knowing that he did that is not the same as discovering that, by the way, ah, oh, look at that, cultivated a heart of kindness. So I wanted to tell you, um, I wanted to start with, well, we started with that, but I wanted to talk about how I see if the path is the cultivation of wisdom, I think that we realize it after a certain wisdom is accumulated, you say, oh, look, I didn't know that before. Now I know that. I didn't used to know it. Now I know it, really. I've, I've said many times, uh, actually, when I'm teaching, I say, oh, I never said that as well as I just now said it now. That's because I never got it just as, just as well as I just now said it now. So I'm not finished with learning. I think it's an ever-learning path. I'm going to read you a, a, a paragraph out of the most recent copy of uh, Lion's Roar. It's an interview with Jane Hirschfield. And she's Jane Hirschfield, poet and a Zen student of many years and writer of many books, is being interviewed by the Inquiring Mind. And she... Uh, Said in in response to you know what's changed about you all these years of zazen practice and all uh, all these years of being a poet and published author, I said uh, she said your life in meditation you move from listening into life. Your life became in, as inseparable from the world's life, and as inseparable from my practice. When I asked her if she could explain more precisely how this unfolding, she said, if someone cuts me off driving, I don't feel angry. Somewhere along the line, I became someone who just thinks maybe they're just on their way to a dying pageant, parent. I can't know. But my first response is to assume that there must be some good reason. I think that's brilliant, you know. I just... The first thing I assume is they must be going to a dying parent. And I thought that over and over, and I outlined it, and I underlined it. And I think not only is that like a compassionate, maybe, answer, but it is a compassionate answer insofar as it heads off the possibility that I might get angry. It, that meeting that moment by saying, wow, I hope that they're running to an emergency to be of a help. You know, that it it not only, first of all, it could be that they're running to an emergency and I have to help. 
but it's the emergency is I'm about to get mad and I'm about to say that blankety blank person, look what they just did and can't go on the highway anymore and they should have more highway patrolmen out and they should really give out tremendous fines for that sort of kamikaze driving and blah, blah, blah. I could do that or I could say, well, they must be on their way to a dying parent and save myself the angst of a mindful of nastiness or mindful of negativity, which in the, it, it's not that you get a, a failing grade for negativity, but it cuts you off from the world. You're not part of the world at that moment. It's you against the world or you against the freeway and you against all those people who are doing whatever they're doing. Anyway, I thought maybe I'll start with that and then we'll sit for a few moments remembering that we're arriving here. <laughs> you know, when you're in a plane and at the last minute you're having a bumpy landing, <laughs> but we landed. So here we are and we'll sit for just three or four minutes. Look at the people who stayed in the waiting room and waited with you. That's great. Did everybody who's here close your eyes? Feel yourself breathing. I give you the instruction, I offer you the instruction, take slightly longer breaths in and out. Not exaggerated, just slightly longer in and out for a few moments. You find that the whole body slows down.
Here's another line from Jane Hirschfield. And gradually you become permeable. You feel no distinction between what's inside and outside the skin. So that unboundaried awareness reaches out in all directions to all beings. I love that. Impermeable. Not permeable. We become permeable. We become permeable. Feel or be the sensation of the body around all its edges, moving out into the space of your room, in your home, and indeed in successive breaths. If you can imagine into the whole world. Become permeable to the whole world. We'll sit another two or three minutes.
always when I'm about to open my eyes in the room where I've been sitting and feeling myself to be a part of this whole breathing cosmos, I always am often remind myself, I'll be startled when I open my eyes because there's always people. Sometimes when I'm in a room with a lot of people and I say, we're all going to open our eyes in a minute. So prepare to be surprised. And it's a lot of new stimuli. So I say, smile, and then open your eyes so that people open their eyes into a room full of smiling people. Are you surprised to find a room full of people? Or startled? Well, here we are. I was thinking about um, learning things after they happen, that they've happened. Well, if I'll say something, and or I'll realize something, and I say, oh, I remember when so-and-so said, I remember I heard really, so I started my formal practice of mindfulness, vipassana meditation in uh, July of 1977. So in, uh, so that means 47 years of practice, I think something like that. And that sounds about right to me because I was 41 years old. I remember that Suzuki Roshi said once, people, uh, Suzuki Roshi was a, a very well-known uh, Zen master who came from Japan. My friends had studied with him by the time I met them. Uh, he was the Zen master, first Zen master in the San Francisco Zen Center. And uh, I, I never met him personally, but presumably a lovely person and a lovely teacher. And he said, you know, sitting Zazen, you don't see dramatic moments where you see, oh, I, you know, now I woke up, this is it. She, he said, it's the same. Practicing Zazen over time, he said, is the same as walking in San Francisco in the summertime when there's a lot of fog. So it's not rainy, it's a lot of fog. And you walk in the fog and you're walking and walking in the fog. And all of a sudden you say, ah, wet. And he said, that's, that's about what it is. I thought of that this morning. And I thought, that's about it. You walk around in the Dharma for a long time, and all of a sudden you think to yourself, ah, wise. I wouldn't have done that before. Now I see I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get upset about this. I'm not going to do that. That's like, um, uh, there's a story of, um, often it comes up in very early stories of the Buddha, and he'll say something like, if you pick up a hot coal, and it, it, when you pick up a hot coal by accident, you see the coals in a certain heater have seem to be all cooled off. And you pick up one of them and it's still hot. You drop it right away. And he said, if you pick up something and it turns out to be hot, if you're about to uh, let anger arise, or you let anger arise, you go, oh, and you drop it because it's painful. And I, I guess that's like... After a while, you get to see if you're about to have an angry angry response, you don't go there. I, I hope you... 
I hope you love that that thing I read to you about uh, somewhere along the line, Jane Hirschfield says, I became someone who thinks maybe they're on their way to a dying person, a dying parent. I can't know. Maybe they are. And then you might think that, you know, a, a regular person might think, oh, but what if they're not? And they're still cutting me off. Uh, but I'm saving myself from the pain. First of all, I can't do anything about it. Second of all, the cutoff already happened. And the, the the accident that they could have caused didn't happen. And I am safe. And I could take the by road of thinking, oh, I'm writing to the Board of Supervisors. Why don't we have more highway patrol? Da, 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 da. Thereby steaming up my mind and confusing it all the more. Or I can say, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, including me, including to that person who's running, and save me the kind of upset in my mind that would be unpleasant to carry around with me. Now, the things that I noticed, I, th I think, I may have talked about this the last time, there are things that I noticed that I... I don't. I know that they're important when they're important, when they're happening. But I don't quite get them. And then they say, "Stay in my mind." Sometimes people say, "You know, I've been on so many retreats, and the teachers tell the same stories, and they tell the same stories over and over and over and over again." Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that I do too. But they're stories that, in the end, have changed my mind. Sometimes I tell the story again. And uh, I, because I thought it was a valuable story and made a point. And then when I'm telling it again, I realize it is a valuable story and it's making the point in a more profound way now. And I really got it. So it's like, ah, what? You do it enough times and you realize it. I don't think I've told the story. You tell me, sometimes if I tell the story and I've told it a thousand times recently, how many people know the story about the woman on the beach in Guaymas? Bromity has heard me tell it a thousand times, probably Jashoda as well, because I often teach with the two of them, so they hear me tell it all the time. Cindy heard it. How many people do not remember that woman on the beach? Okay, you're going to hear about the woman on the beach. I went, because it's, it's a fundamental story, I, went, I was on a holiday with my husband 40 years ago, at least. Uh in uh, in the middle of the summer, which is a weird time to go to Guaymas because it's uh, very hot. It's a beach uh, resort town in uh, Mexico. And the summer is a very weird time to go because the water is so warm in the Gulf of Mexico there. But that's why I love it. You just walk in, it's like a bathtub and they have beautiful snorkeling and that's just my type of water. And then you get out of the water and you go into the hotel where it's a very, very big fortress of a concrete hotel with tremendous air conditioning. So we were either reading books in our air conditioned room or swimming in that water. And uh, uh, we frequently visited a trailer park right next to the hotel property where people came down in, in camper vans and uh, set up their van and lived there for a week or a month or whatever. We met a woman with two children. They were four and one years old. Not even one, because the baby, I remember, was crawling. And uh, we were at the edge of the sea there. 
and the, the water would come in and then, you know, the wave breaks and a little bit of water comes up to the beach and then it recedes. And the baby is crawling around there. And the mother was very relaxed. She's got a four-year-old and this baby that's crawling in the edge of the sea in a trailer 40 years ago where the air conditioning is not so good as now. Anybody here has noticed anything about this story that makes them worried? Notice anything about the story? If you were this person's mother-in-law, <laughs> would you be happy about her camping? She's a woman alone with two babies with who knows what kind of air conditioning in a tiny town on a beach in Guaymas in the summer by herself. She said, my husband flies down on weekends. He's got a, a he's got a, a, a small plane airport in outside of Los Angeles. And he stays the weekend and he teaches fly, flying during the week. He goes back and forth. That's another thing that a worrying mother-in-law or mother could think about is all those flights back and forth in this little plane. She said, it's great. I don't like L.A. in the summer. So I just come down here with the children. We hang out all summer. Okay. I'm thinking, where is the nearest pediatrician? Is there a hospital in Guaymas? This is before cell phones. What's she going to do if she has children? There's a thousand things wrong with it. What's a, one of those puzzles for children where the elephant doesn't have a trunk or something? Said, so what's the matter with this picture? What's the matter with that picture of the woman on the beach? No pediatricians, no refrigeration, no this, no that. Anyway, in the middle of the night, I don't know if we were visiting with them. Nice people, nice babies, nice baby, nice person, nice babies. We're in the hotel in the middle of the night. There's a huge storm and thunder and lightning. And you couldn't have not, you couldn't have missed it because it was booming. You pull back the curtains and the uh, the lightning was going all across the sky and flashing and thundering and raining, pouring. And you think, well, you know, surely it's going to flood out the trailer park. And the next morning, I'm thinking, how's this woman managing? Next morning, we go down. The, 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 it's passed by the next morning. We go down. Everybody in the trailer park is, is sweeping out their air outdoor area and retrieving their outdoor furniture and setting it up again. And here's a woman, and here's her two children playing around next to her camper. And I, I said, how was the storm? She said, it was great. I said, uh, how did you manage with the children? She said, well, the baby slept through it. And John, he would have slept through it, but I woke him up so he wouldn't miss it. And I thought to myself, I see Carlita has not heard that story before. Isn't that a great story? Because the same thing that I'm thinking, uh, oh, it's going to be a flood and the whole camper trailer is going to flood out to sea, da, 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 whatever. I woke up Tom so he wouldn't miss it. Uh, okay. And I thought to myself, I want to have a mindectomy or a mind transplant. I want to have my mind trans transplanted into her thing that she has. She says the same thing that I see as a potential catastrophe. She's having a ball about. Look at this. I didn't want John to miss the excitement of that. I wanted that mind. It took me, so that was very clear to me. I did not see anything between how I was going to move from having the kind of fretful mind about, oh, where's the pediatrician? Where's the sterilizing milk? Where's the this? Where's the that? That I didn't have that kind of a mind. What I didn't know 
In case you're thinking, I said, I'm going to say that mind goes away when you notice that it's a particular mind habit. I wish that were true. The mind habit stays. What doesn't stay is believing, is getting seduced into fear about it. That when something happens, I call somebody who's supposed to be at home nowadays when we have cell phones. And you say, and nobody picks up the phone. It's one of my people in my call. They're not there. I don't think, uh uh-oh, they're in a ravine somewhere. Or if I think, uh uh-oh, their car has crashed and they're in a ravine, I say, look at that. Your mind is still doing that same unfortunate glitch into catastrophe. I I, I, I actually began to notice it uh, uh, more, not when my children were as grown and I didn't have grandchildren, I'd be traveling with my husband somewhere in Europe, again, without cell phones. Um, and I would say, all right, we'll meet on this street corner at such and such a time because he wanted to go X and I wanted to go Y. Come to that street corner. I say, I'll meet you here at four o'clock. At three minutes to four, he's not there. And so I'm thinking, why, where is he? You know, uh, he said, and, you know, should be there before the time, you know. And then it's four and he's not there three minutes later. And I think, well, you know, he's an old man. Maybe he got confused. Maybe he got mugged. Maybe somebody dragged him into an alley as he was going by. Maybe he had a heart attack. He is an older man. You know? And then at six, at four or five, he ambles around the corner and he's there. And I realized right away that I caused myself this whole fury about what if this, what if that, surely this calamity had been happened. And not thinking to myself, which I would these days think, there goes my mind again, making a catastrophe. Probably it didn't happen. And I'll just look in the, in the store windows right now and spend my time looking in the store windows. I'll wait five minutes, I'll wait 10 minutes. You know, if ultimately someone doesn't show up, then you do emergency things. You call the police or whatever, but or you find the police. But in between, when I go to the airport now and they say, ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? You think, ah, the plane I'm waiting for is just uh, crashed. In that microsecond between that and then they say, uh, please keep a close eye on your luggage. And don't let anybody handle your... They always say the same thing. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention. Please keep your personal baggage with you. Don't let other people touch it. They always say, but ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention. <laughs> but now I'm happy to say, they say, ladies and gentlemen, I start to laugh. I said, this is it. You know, because it's going it, to... This is going to be some... Because I know that I actually, if I say this is it, I don't... Think of it. I think about what what really abstract thing could I think of, and I really wish that you could have a mindectomy or train the mind to do otherwise, but you can't. But what you have is you put wisdom in the mind, and they say, "Ladies and gentlemen," without even hearing what they're going to say. You say to yourself, "I say to myself, it's not true. Whatever you're about to think, it's not true. You're making it up." And it's it's a just a pleasure for those people. How many people have the kind of mind that when in doubt it worries? When in doubt, worry. That you're waiting in a doctor's office and they're three minutes late to get you taken in and you think, oh, they have bad news for me. That's why they're stealing themselves against this meeting. The mind makes up a thousand stories to frighten yourself or to get your courage up. 
just more outside of the ladies and gentlemen, you don't know. You don't know. Who was it? Um, oh, Sansonim, who was the uh, uh, the Zen teacher at um, where was it? It was a certain Zen center where Stephen Mitchell was a student. Okay. Anyway, Sansanim used to say, only cultivate, don't, don't mind. Someone asks you something, you say, no, no. No, no, because you don't know. And that everything that you think, oh, it's surely going to turn out this way. It might, but it might not. You just wait. You just wait. So I remember... So the, if the point of that story was I uh, is that the habit went away or the inclination for the habit went away, it didn't. But wisdom about the habit took took over, and you say, you know, my mind is amazing. It makes up such interesting, far fetched things that you know, that's probably accounts for the fact that I tell a good story and I could be a writer because I'm very inventive with my stories. You know, you can't even imagine the kind of stories I could make up about things. It's what I got. It isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got. I love that thing about you walk in the fog for a long time and all of a sudden you think, ah, what? I also have a feeling about, uh, in, in the mode of thinking about that the mind takes care of itself, the best it can. One of the things I've noticed about contemplative practice, particularly not just paying attention, but having times when the mind is purposely being urged to stay in a um, steady and poised way, is that it recognizes it does a spontaneous moral inventory. Is that a familiar term with you? Certain kinds of religions call for us a diligent moral inventory from time to time. Uh, it's part of um, Catholic practice. Sometimes it's part of um, Jewish practice on Yom Kippur, the moral inventory. I think my mind is doing a moral inventory all the time and it remembers what I didn't do. I used to notice it particularly if I sat down at home to meditate and sit down at home you take two breaths and you think, I should have put the wash in the dryer before I sat down. Anybody that happens to ever? I should have taken the stuff out of the freezer. All the things that start with the, with the phrase, I should have come up. Because if I should have, I should. I mean, it's not a moral issue whether they take the food out of the freezer. But I think the mind takes jobs seriously. I should do this. This is really an interesting one because I just figured this out this morning. Like, it's not crucial that I remember to take food out of the freezer or whatever, you know, that I, I remember to call Shoto or whatever, that, and I said I would. But there are things that it is waiting to make amends for. Let me see how I can tell you about that. I'd go on retreat, and I'd be sitting on retreat uh, on the beginning days of retreat, and the mind is just settling down. And then it says, oh, I told so-and-so I'd call them before I left, and I didn't. Fully, it's too late. Okay. 
I'll do that when I get home. I I got in the habit of having a, a pad and a pencil with me under my zafu, under my zavutan, so I could write down things. When I I forgot I was going to do this. I forgot to reset that. I, so sometimes just a, an actual thing that has to get done. Sometimes um, I forgot to call somebody on their birthday. Okay, that's not a big moral failing, but I forgot to repair that ruptured friendship that uh, comes up, came up for me in different times. I think that I would. I I I I thought to myself for many years, isn't it clever that the mind just waits until you have enough time? Once I was uh, uh, being driven across uh, Massachusetts to an airport in Boston after teaching a retreat in Barry or going to a retreat in Barry. I don't remember which, but it was seeing the leaves in 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 fall. You know. Uh, like even when I thought that yesterday I was making this list of things I wanted to mention, uh, I thought to myself, "Oh, I remember that trip in Bar Barry," and a picture flashes in my mind because uh, you know the, it, it's an amazing thing to see the trees in Boston in, in uh, September and October as they've turned all those colors, and we don't have that. It's kind of drab. You think so? You think. First of all, before it's rained, it's not green, and we don't have all those colorful trees. And anyway, there's nothing like that. And I was once being driven to uh, to the airport, and uh, somehow we came around a corner where the Hudson River came into view, and so it was a beautiful view. And I'd been ooing and eyeing about the trees, and all of a sudden, I remembered having been on a date on uh, a cruise line that went from New York City up to, I don't know where, someplace uh, several hours up on the Hudson River and then back down to New York. And I'd gone on the cruise with a, with a date. It was a school affair. And I hadn't paid any attention to my date. I was flirting with other people on the, it was a, not my finest hour. I was 15 years old. It's not a big, terrible thing. The person who I, didn't pay any attention to on the whole date and whose feelings I hurt, I'm sure, on that occasion is probably dead by now. But actually, when I actually thought that uh, that story, I thought to myself, oh, I feel so bad. Maybe, I, you know, and uh, I really, I wish I could, uh, you know, I was young. It was a stupid thing to do. And it was unkind. And he was such a uh, sensitive young boy, you know, and we were playing in a school orchestra together is what it is. And he was a little bit on the nerdy side. So was I a lot on the nerdy side. So I thought, oh, I probably messed up his whole life, you know, which is inflating, of course, the, the possibilities. I thought, well, how can I find his, you know, how can I call him? It's 30 years later. How could I call him? I could never find him. He's got a, such an unremarkable name. And maybe he's dead, and maybe he's forgotten the whole thing a million times ago, and I would just be bringing it up. And maybe he hasn't forgotten it, and that'd be all the worse. And maybe he had a terrible, maybe he had a wonderful life. Maybe he flirted with somebody else. And I mean, it was such a small thing 
I'm part of it. The point is not that I did such a terrible thing, but I remembered it 30 years later or 40 years later, who knows? And I thought, oh, I can't even do anything. I don't know. I know I knew his name, but I don't know how to find him and how to apologize. And I just thought, okay, wherever you are, if you're living, not living, I hope your life is well. And I hope I pay good attention now that the, the that the response the what eases the heart is saying I, I I'm pretty sure I wouldn't do that kind of thing again. And I'm gonna teach kindness. I teach kindness. But what really interested me in that, first of all, I felt good about that. But second of all, I realized that there's so much in our minds that you don't even who knows, we've done a billion acts in our life. And who knows when you're going to go around the corner and see the leaves in bloom in a certain way or in, in unbloom in a certain way. And those colored leaves on the Hudson River said, ah, 40 years ago, I did this un insensitive thing and have it come back to me. And it's, it's kind of a, a learning in sensitivity, I think. I I, you know, I hope that I told that well enough for you to get that that I don't think it's a terrible thing, but I think it's a thing that trains the heart to kindness. That you suddenly have a feeling of I really wish I hadn't done that, so I can really dedicate myself to not doing any iteration of that again, because I don't want to have the idea that my mind can be frightened by this or that or the other thing. I was also on a panel with a person who, I won't tell you who it was, uh, a, 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 another person who was a writer. We were talking, and we, we both live in the same county. And <laughs> now everybody else is going to know. Okay. We both live in the same county. And we were talking about one thing or another, and this person said, uh, talking about um, uh, their spiritual practice, there's uh, talking about the need for um, um, a God-centered religion. Religion, but anyway, apropos of that religion, the person said, "My mind is a dangerous place. I wouldn't want to go there alone." And I thought to myself. That's exactly what I don't want. I don't believe that my mind is inherently a dangerous place. And I do go there alone. And I want to have it be the kind of place where I don't have to be afraid to go there. Towards which end, I really uh, dedicate. I really am determined, uh, if I can, not to leave a trail of dereliction, not to do anything that would cause any pain to anybody. But it could be even a small thing, like 45 years ago, I hurt some young boy's feelings, and I remember it. So I'm not likely to do it again. Oops, so much time has gone by, and I wanted to tell all these stories. I think you notice afterwards, and then you say, I, what I learned is the the uh, the learning is um, in uh, Buddhist terms is hiri and otapa. Hiri and otapa mean moral shame and moral dread. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Moral shame and moral dread. Uh, I think those are probably bad trend 
Anyway, I don't know. But um, they're defined as recognizing two things, recognizing that everything that you do has consequences and that the consequences are eternal. They, they, are, they permeate everything. They, that um, whether or not I recycle these particular plastic bottles or don't in the whole sphere of the planet is an infinitesimal thing. But the planet is made up of infinitesimal things. So it behooves me to um, it behooves me to recycle. I'm I'm pausing because it's a whole other story. I was once in a in a uh, a colloquium with a bunch of other Dharma teachers thirty years ago, maybe when it was becoming clear that there had been some inappropriateness in some Dharma circles with some teachers, and uh, the question was, how do you pick a teacher, and how do you know? that this teacher is um, a worthwhile teacher for you. How do you choose? What are the criteria for choosing a teacher? And we people were doing different things and say, well, what are the criteria for not choosing a person? And one person said, well, I wouldn't be interested in whether or not, for instance, they recycle. And I thought to myself, I would actually be interested in whether or not they recycle. That would be one of the things. The understanding that everything I do makes a difference and that it means that my mind has to stay a little bit alert, at least a little bit alert. Anyway, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think, was that a thing I wanted to tell or not? But that's... Uh, you know, the other thing that I, I realized over many years is uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I have my own Zen story. I I didn't tell you. No, I told you about Suzuki Roshi. And I have scribbled notes all over the place. I told you about Suzuki. I did not tell you about Kwan, Kwan Roshi today, did I? No. No. Okay. Um I, uh, when I went back to graduate school, I had to take a certain number of courses and uh, towards my degree, and you could take it any place in the Bay Area. And Sonoma State College was giving a course in Zazen um, with Kwan Roshi, who is still alive, I'm happy to say. He's uh, maybe, I think he's actually the same age as I am, um, and has this Sonoma's uh, Zen Mountain Center. And... Um, I saw, I, they said when I went to sign up for the class, they said the class is full. And uh, I went anyway to the class because in those days you could go to a class and in portion the teacher to let you in and they might if they wanted to give you a class card. So uh, I went and the room was full of people and there were a certain number of Zafus and Zabitans there. And he said, if you're not in the class, you can't be in the class because the class is full. We have these many Zabutans and Zafus. We have this many walls. And Zazen, you sit by a wall and you sit on the Zabutans. And we have that many. And we have more than that people in the room. So you can't be in the class. Don't come. 
So the next week I come again with a lot of other people who haven't come, who were there the first time that he said, don't come back. And we came back thinking, well, they'll see I'm so serious. So I come back. Again, there are too many people. And he let us stay and sit any old place. And at least we listen a little bit. And then he said, um, listen, really don't come back. We don't have enough room. I can't give you a class card. And keep in mind that being in a class is the same as not being in the class. So I think to myself, well, that's um, weird Zen mumbo jumbo. What do you mean being in the class is the same as not being in the class? You're in the class, you get you get 10 units or it's eight units and you you hear Kwam Roshi talk about Zen and you get the practice and da-da-da, my old degree depends on that. Anyway, I went to see him in his office and I pleaded my case and he gave me a card. <laughs> and I got into the class. And I so I'm sitting there week after week, twice a week, sitting on my Zafu, looking at the looking with lowered eyes at the wall in front of me. And at some time in the four or five months that the course went on, I was sitting there and the thought suddenly came to me. In some ways that insights often do, being in the class is the same as not being in the class. I thought it came to me. And I thought, you know, the very same thing that I thought, what is that Zen mumbo jumbo? And in a moment, I thought to myself, you know, it doesn't really matter. If I hadn't gotten in, I'd be doing something else and something else would have something else. Nothing's that big of a deal. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And I think that it's a piece of knowledge that that's actually a piece of wisdom that in the sphere of a whole life, there are some things that really do matter. But something, you know, mostly it doesn't matter. Like people have bucket lists. Before I die, I want to see this Taj Mahal. And you go to see the Taj Mahal, and you're the same person. And you, you, you got there, and it was a long schlep, and to come back, and uh, whatever. Maybe it was the event of a lifetime, not saying not to go to the Taj Mahal. But whatever you don't get to go to. And this may be not from the insight of a life is full of a million billion experiences. You know, a million times, you know, a certain number of fantastic places there's a book out called a thousand experiences you should have before you die something like that I'm, it can't be a thousand maybe it's a hundred maybe it's a thousand because it's a paperback and it's fat but but what happens if you don't see them or the whole thousand or you spend your life running to this one or that one the thing is what's it going to are you going to be a different person afterwards or, or you're just going to be a person who has not visually seen the Taj Mahal. What's going to have happen? It doesn't matter. If I sometimes say a goofy thing, sometimes I teach a class, and most of the time I'm very happy with what I say, and I'm telling stories that have been important to me, and most of people like that. And sometimes I think to myself, gosh, I was all over the place this morning. I don't think I was that crisp in my planning. And after a little while, I think to myself, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're just sharing the same space. It's it's all wisdom. Sometimes you, I, I remember saying about it, sometimes my team shows up and sometimes they don't. <laughs> and my team is Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg 
and all my other teachers and my parents and my grandparents. Sometimes they show up, sometimes they don't. I think the main thing that I have learned in all this time is that when is the the what I say to people now about I'm trying to habituate my mind to always respond in kindness. It's actually a reflection of the wisdom that any other response is painful. And I'm thinking to myself as I say that, that's such a, it's just true that any other response is painful. Any other, it could, it could be a variation of kindness, could be um, mudita, uh, which is uh, the uh, the opposite of envy or jealousy. Or uh, Did I tell you? I don't think I did. Did I tell you the story about the man who was running backwards on his treadmill? Uh, yes, Rivka says yes. Rivka says yes. No, Rivka, no, didn't tell it. How many people have heard the man who was running backwards on his treadmill? Where would you have heard that? <laughs> How many people don't know about the man running backwards on his treadmill? Okay, that's probably because I was teaching it on a Thursday morning uh, and I was teaching it to my synagogue community because that the people who just raised their hands are the people who heard it there. Uh, so anyway, I'm on my I go to the I go to the gym as often as I can bring myself there. And I walk on my treadmill. I do not run on it and anymore. I used to 30 or 40 years ago. Now I walk on it, and I walk on it, and I mostly hold on to the railings on it or the rail on the front of it. And uh, I mostly don't turn it so it's uphill. I'm mostly walking on the flat, and I mostly walk a mile, which takes me 20 minutes to feel like I've done enough. So I do my 20 minutes on the treadmill, and I finish, and uh, I... Uh, turn off the treadmill, and I turn this way to walk down the line of empty treadmills and go out the door to my next lane. And there's a man that I'm approaching who is running on his treadmill, but not running facing the treadmill. He's running facing the other way, which is like running downhill on his treadmill. And he's not holding on to anything because there's nothing to hold on to if he's facing backwards on the treadmill. And the treadmill is running uphill, and he's running downhill on the other side. You can't stop for a minute. It would be like running down uh, on uh, any of those streets in downtown San Francisco where they're all downhill. Once you start, you're running downhill. So he's running downhill on his treadmill like that. And I've just walked on mine. And I thought, as I turned around and I saw him, I had a momentary thought, almost thought, which I... I, it's like I I was surprised by the thought that I have. That's the more correct way to say. Because I thought to myself, Atta boy, go for it. Do it. I was so excited about it. Here's this guy running backwards on this treadmill. That's like a miracle. It's like a 15-foot high jump or something. 
And I said, Attaboy, go for it, I'm thinking to myself. And then I'm thinking, look at that. You did not think what you thought you think would think. That's the kind of a thought that I would think, oh, you know, look at him. And I myself am barely creeping up this treadmill on a flat, facing it, and I'm so old. That's that the habitual thought. Then the, the thought with no envy in it is the um is the antidote to envy is mudita, just delight in the other person's thing. Yeah, that absolutely look at that. This is like uh once in a blue moon. There's there's gonna be two full moons in October, you know. Look at that, you think, wow, look at that. Uh and I began to think. I once read a long time ago that the antidote to all of the afflictions of the mind are the Brahma Viharas. And I remember hearing that. I think it's true. <laughs> Rifka, Rifka already has a question, so we're going to do it right away. But I think the antidote to all of the afflictions of the mind are the Brahma Viharas. If I see this guy running in an extraordinary way, and I don't say, oh, once upon a time, go for it, you know, enjoy it. This is great. Then it's with no envy, no jealousy, no poor me, so elderly, go for it. It actually does not rupture the connection between us mentally. He and I, in a certain way, are running down that treadmill or running up it or something. I'll say, tell one more story, then we're going to sit, and then Rivka's, oh, then Rivka's going to ask a question, and then we're going to sit. I thought of the other one, which has been happening, and which you have tell, heard me talk about, that uh, I noticed in the last couple of years, since we are pandemicing, that my I have more time to maybe notice what my mind is doing, that uh, the the uh, 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 Leaf blowers on my street, blowing the, the leaves all of a sudden, vroom. And all of a sudden, vroom, I normally think to myself, oh, I have to write to the board, board of supervisors, then get them to pass an ordinance that you can't use those gas fire motors. You have to use a battery one because it's so noisy. And I, I've got a whole screed. I've got a whole long letter that I've already written to the board of supervisors in my mind. And I never send it because what's the point? They're busy with other things. My, uh, my peace of mind in my house is not first on the list in the county of important things. And on that particular occasion, we were still in here on pandemic uh, quarantine. And it was a raining day and the guy was blowing his leaves. And I started to think any minute I'm going to he hear that letter to the Board of Supervisors that I haven't yet written that I should write right now. Instead, I think, oh, good. He's still got a job. And he's out there working because, you know, there was pandemic and people were sick. And not this guy. He was out there working. I was so glad that he had a job and was out there working. And I was surprised with the benevolent mind state. Like, I felt like my mind was nicer than I was. But then you realize that I'm actually getting nicer than I was. And you all have heard me say, uh, I, who knows how many times, that my late husband Seymour said to me, "What have you, what have you learned from all your decades of mindfulness 
practice? What have you learned? How have you changed? And I said, I became kind. And he said, you were always kind. And that's probably true because I came from my old mannered kind people. But he said, he said, you were always kind. And I said, that's probably true, but I became kinder. Kinder. One more story because it makes a kinder point. A couple of years ago, I went with uh, Nikki Mirgafori, who's a teacher at Spirit Rock, who I very much admire, with whom, by the way, I am teaching a retreat end of November at Spirit Rock. So, I, I'm, so I'm inviting you to sign up. It's full, but uh, the chances are that it will have um, a waiting list. It has a waiting list. But it says, if you look at it, it says join waiting list. And so you might get in and you could probably join waiting list to get a um, commuter spot if you wanted one. Anyway, uh, I was watching Nancy and you were holding your head and I was going to say, are you all right? Are you all right, Nancy? Yeah, you, you're all right, right? Okay, because I, I looked and you, you had what? Well, there it was. That's my mind. Uh, <laughs> it's a storm in Mexico. Uh-oh. You're just like that. Maybe you're having, that's like uh, the thinker. And maybe you're just thinking, or maybe you're having a stroke. <laughs> Unbelievably, it's a habit of my mind. I'm sorry. I didn't believe it, but it caught my attention. What was I just talking about? Oh, now about uh, Nikki Megafori. Um and I'm happy to be. Uh, I'm happy to be teaching that anyway, because um, we we haven't taught together before, but um, we were at a uh, conference together recently, and realized that uh, just as Heidi and I have the same dharma. Nikki and I have the same dharma. And she had this retreat that she was teaching and invited me to join her. Anyway, I'm joining her. If you want to get on the waiting list to be a computer or to be there, you could do that. Anyway, that's what confused me. Uh, or that's what I allowed myself to become confused about. I'm in charge. Uh, I think it's going to all turn out in the end to be um, much more emphasis on uh, the perfection of sila than on the development of insight, because that's the best thing line I've said so far. Mark that down, Heidi. So we say it. That's going to come down all to the the, the um, development of sila, because it's after you develop the sila that you discover the joy of sila, and therefore want to continue with that. That's what changes the behavior and then you notice that you're happier for it. And I said, write it down, Heidi, because you know that Heidi is teaching interchangeably with me on Wednesday mornings. And uh, also Heidi and I are teaching tomorrow again, uh, a three-week course, which you can join in the middle if you want to, and they'll send you last week's that you missed. Heidi and I are having, oh, there it is. 
Oh, Carlita, you're so on the ball with that stuff. Good for you. <laughs> it's already up there. That's how to get on to tomorrow's call and uh, next week's call. All right, there we go. Now back to say, I think it's, I, I have a bigger respect. So here was a story about Nikki Mirgafori, and then we're going to sit. Although then we're going to see because there's so many people have something to say. So we're going to do that. And then we'll sit. Nikki Mirgafori is a person I, I haven't talked with before. And I haven't known very well. She lives in the way in the South Bay and I live way in the North Bay here. But I've admired her for some years. And we both went to uh, a weekend of teaching with Anam Tipton, who teaches across the bay in, in Richmond. And uh, who was actually Tibetan, was born in Tibet. Uh, was a monk for some time, now lives in Richmond, teaches, has a very large following. Um, and he taught uh, he taught a wonderful retreat on loving kindness for the entire teaching staff of uh, Spirit Rock Meditation Center. He was our guest to teach everybody. And Nikki and I met each other. Uh, we had last met each other couple of years ago when we were both taking a course together at Mangalam Center, uh, which is another Tibetan practice center in Berkeley. And uh, we just spent uh, two days of a, of a very wonderful academic weekend there, three or four years ago together. And as we were walking back to our seats after one of the uh, breaks and uh, coffee breaks and what, whatever, I was carrying a cup of coffee with a lid on it uh, back to our place, uh, back into the hall. And as I was walking along, even they have a lid, they have a little hole in the lid, and a little bit of coffee slopped out onto the, as I was walking, you know, your arm moves a little bit, a little bit of coffee slopped out of my cup and fell on the floor. Maybe a couple of drops, not a big flood, a couple of drops. And I'm in the middle of explaining, you know, as, as you know, I'm a loquacious person. I keep on talking. And anyway, I'm talking to Nikki about something or other. Da, 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 splashes out. And I keep on walking. And Nikki says, wait a second. And walks into uh, an administrative office right there. Comes out with a paper towel and wipes up the floor. And uh, we continue on. And she said, I was just thinking someone might trip. Someone might slip. This happened three or four years ago. The whole event is a 10-second, 5-second event. I slop the coffee, continue walking. Nikki runs and gets a paper towel, wipes it up, and says somebody might slip. And I didn't feel devastated that Nikki now saw that I didn't wipe it up immediately myself. But I didn't wipe it up immediately myself. I overlooked it, and somebody might have slipped. And I liked Nikki so much for running in and getting the paper and wiping it up. Because since that time, I am way more alert to where, you know, to, I don't know how many iterations of my coffee slopped. I mean, that I really learned about I am my brother's keeper. I am in charge of everything that I could possibly influence. Not in charge of, but I am part of everything that happens. If anybody slips, could be that the floor is too waxed it could be because sylvia slopped water on it and didn't wipe it up but to be on the alert for that 
you know, I never told Nikki that story. I just told it to, I don't know, uh, four, 50 people, 48 people. <laughs> uh, that's all right, because I don't slop anymore now. I notice it. I hope it has more iterations than that. But not because someone's going to say, yeah, yeah, you slopped. But I could hurt somebody. And I think that's the real meaning of Hiri and Otapa, is that you're always looking around, not only how can I help, but what can I do? Does that make sense? All right, take a breath. And out. And Rifka really wants to say something. Go ahead, dear. I was so touched by the story of little Sylvia at age 15 on a date and flirting with someone and remembering to be kind over older in life. And it did remind me of a book I wanted to tell you about. George Saunders, the famous writer who wrote Swim in the Pond, 10th of December, Lincoln the Bartle, gave a talk at Syracuse on commencement. And he you know, everybody gives these inspiring commencement talks. He gave a talk called Congratulations and By the Way. And it was all about telling these graduates at Syracuse to be kind. And he, it was based on the fact that when he was in elementary school, he remembered there was a little girl who everybody was mean to and bullied. And he wasn't mean to her, but he wasn't friend, he didn't befriend her. And he thought, I could have said hello to her. I could have been kind to her. And that stayed with him his whole life. And that's what he talked at commencement about. And it was really a beautiful congratulations, by the way. But just the idea that, you know, I think many of us will have a memory of, gee, I wish I would have been kind to that person or why didn't I say something nicer? And if we can hold on to that thought or memory, you know, and keep that in our heart, it, it it's kind of like a little, like a little feather on little thing on your shoulders. So, like, don't forget that time you didn't do that. But it was so touching to hear you tell that story, Sylvia. I really loved it. Well, that brings tears in my eyes, Rifka, because I remember in in that I did write about it sometime. I don't remember in what book, but but I remember that I was saying, you know, that it's like a feather in 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 a, a lifetime of tiny things. It's like a feather, but a ton of feathers weighs a ton, you know that. Uh, that and over a lifetime you could have a ton of feathers and uh that that is why i think about taking your heart to the laundry that i that i think i've dispensed that feather with uh by thinking about him it was funny i thought you know he had such a uh an ethnic name there are probably i thought to myself probably at least ten thousand uh middle-aged when i had this realization 10,000 at least middle-aged uh Jewish men in the northeast corridor with that name uh, who would have been you know it's a common kind of a name but I could have I could have done something different I could have done something there's Rosie you know, Sylvia, a lot of times when um, you're teaching, I will put it on speaker view. Um, just so, you know, you're big and I can, you know, uh, see you. Um, but today I had to keep it on gallery view because I noticed Nancy and she was just hanging 
on every word you said and just delighting in it. And, you know, this big smile. And, you know, I just felt delighted that she was delighted. And I thought of that Mudita, you know, she was just magnifying my joy in being with you. You know, so I just wanted to share that, that um, this is a very special space and your teachings are, you know, so beautiful and go right to the heart. <laughs> Nancy was so wonderful. You did it like that. And I thought, oh, <laughs> something happened to Nancy. Oh, it's, but it just shows, you know, you, you don't get to have a, a mind transplant or, a, you know, you get to live with whatever you got, you know. Uh, I'm not going to get any taller either. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Rosie. Oh, well, thank you, Sylvia. All right, how are we gonna how are we gonna meditate? We're gonna meditate this way. Open your eyes. Don't close them. Look at the look at wherever you are. Look at all these people in their different places. And it's such a miracle that we can be here, people all over the world. If you think you're the furthest where person away, where are you? Anybody outside of the United States? Oh, oh Carolyn, where are you? Quebec. Well, you're in Quebec. Yes, yes, yes. I remember you from Quebec. And sometimes there's somebody here from Panama, but she's not here today. Okay. How many people are from outside of California? Well, Rufko's in Chicago, I think. Are you in Chicago? Yeah. Where is everybody else? Rachel, where are you? I'm in Philadelphia. You're in Philadelphia. And Lori, where are you? Alaska. Oh, wow. Is it winter? No, um, but fall is definitely creeping in. Is it getting markedly darker earlier? Yep. (laughs) I'd like to be there at a season change. I was once there on midsummer, and uh, it really doesn't get dark. Uh, All right. So look at a person that you do know. When you do know them, you usually know them and you feel your heartbeat go ding a little bit. And send them a good wish. Say to them in your mind, in your mind's voice, I love you. I hope you're great. I'm glad you're in my life. And then find somebody else who you don't know at all, who it's even hard for me to find somebody who I haven't met even. But there's a couple of people that we met. And just look at that person. Realize we don't know anything really. 
about what's happening in their life and what their family is like or who their family is like or what are their conditions. I've been making up blessings that you might send that people you don't know at all because they're actually blessings I suppose that everybody could use. Like um, instead of saying may you be well, I might be saying may you have patience and joy in everything that you do today. Make it up. Make up a blessing. May you have patience and joy. May you have wisdom and whatever. I like the patience one. And figure that they can hear you say it in your voice, in their mind. And then look at everybody and think you also, may you have it. And then close your eyes. And let your breath come in and out. And again, see if you can feel the edges of your body. Where your 
head and your neck and your shoulders and your torso, and your hips and your thighs and your legs, all end, all touch the air around them or the seat under them or the seat behind them. Where your corporeal body meets the rest of the world. Nestles into it a little bit more closely and then relaxes. Imagine, because it's not imagining, that you can wish goodness and kindness and patience and wisdom to everyone out there. That your heart is really the message center of the world. your heart and everyone else's heart.
there's a traditional blessing for spreading wishes to more than one people or person or more than one group. The traditional one begins, uh, may all beings be peaceful and happy, come to the end of suffering, all human, all, all beings, all living beings, all devas and brahmas, all human beings, all beings in lower realms. And I find that uh, not as fulfilling as thinking of groups of beings for whom I wish well. So I hope that in the last couple of minutes now that Carlita will turn on everybody's um, uh, speech. So you're all, you all could speak now. I'll invite you to add to, I'll start with all beings, all living beings, and then I'll add uh, a few more categories of people. And you'll see there categories of people that don't have specific names. But I'll invite you to speak into the open mic and wait till the person before you is finished. Otherwise, it won't work well. Wait till it's quiet and then say, I'll say all beings, all living beings, all human beings, all devas and brahmas, all things in existence, and all human beings, all fathers, all mothers, all people who are planting a field right now in the Southern Hemisphere, all third-year chemistry students studying isotopes, all, now it's your turn, all anything. But you're all, un, you're all unmuted, so you can say, all daycare children who are spending the day in their daycare. All middle school teachers. All people doing internships. All people impacted by war. All people who are homeless. All beings in the non-human realm. All people who feel confused. All people driving their cars. All beings in Maui impacted by the fire. All people who are hungry. All people who feel isolated. All people suffering from depression. All people suffering from loss. All people suffering from addiction and homelessness. All people who are alone.
all animals who have no more place to live. Oh. All the Dharma teachers. All the community. All widows, widowers. All people searching for meaning. All people feeling overwhelmed. All people who are ill. All people with chronic pain. All people with chronic fatigue. All people who really wonder if life is worth living. All parents with children who are disabled and the children. All uh, people who need to be heard. All people who are discriminated against for characteristics that they cannot change. All children with behavioral problems. All beings who are brokenhearted. All people who are undervalued in their professions. I invite you to open your eyes now and look at all this community of blessers. There wasn't any blessing that anybody offered that I thought, oh yes, oh yes, I could do that. I could do that. I'm thinking, how does that? And I'm appreciative that I'm a human being and I have a heart that feels that can respond to each of those yes, that, that, that. May we all live into a time when we discover that's a thing that human beings can do. And may everybody on this vast and amazing planet figure out how to do it. May all beings be peaceful and happy, come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.